I have been searching What most people say just can't be found But you always find me out Welcome to Following the Fire. Thanks for joining us on this journey through the wilderness. Just like Israel followed the pillar of fire and smoke, we want to take a new look at our beliefs and just follow him. And like Israel, we get it wrong a lot, we get lost a lot, but we're we're doing our best to, to go where God leads us. I'm Nathan. And I'm Steve. Can't compare with what you're Today I learn what the word heuristic means, and Steve and I talk about deconstruction. What does deconstruction mean? What does it not mean? And what's the process like for people, maybe like us, who are going through it? I also remember the time at the beginning of 2020 when I asked God to pour on more calamity until we got the point. Well, I do apologize for that. I I hope we got the point, and I am extremely happy that you're here with us as we wander through the wilderness together. But it only takes a whisper And I'll give you all my heart How's it going, Nathan? Hey, Steve. It's going good. I, uh... I'm, I'm extremely sunburned. Oh. Which is, uh... As... People may be slowly figuring out. It's just a reminder that I am a slow learner. Because <laughs> I have been sunburned before, and it's always the same thing that causes it, which is exposure to the sun. What? And, uh, there are the same things that you can do against it that I forget at least once a year to do with this kind of consequence. So that's that's where yeah, I am. Yeah, it's, it's usually the, the first time in the year for, that you go out for the sun... It nails you. And I've been ex- I've been indoors more than normal, so I had my skin had not seen real sun for a long time, and uh, so it the the result is was not good. Uh, I was gonna say I look at look at pictures of myself now versus like two years ago. <laughs> yeah, I'm so much whiter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, even. The I, I'm not even getting the tan from the commute, from yeah. the 20-minute commute drive. Yeah, I did the 23andMe thing to, to check your DNA. And they're like, you are the whitest person on the planet. <laughs> Super <laughs> duper white. It's like 75% British and Irish and like 25% Norwegian or whatever and, and some Finnish. So Yeah. I'm not built to be in lots of sun, that's for sure. Like the cold, I'm okay with. I, I I haven't done that, but I do think my ancestors lived somewhere shady or cloudy because when most of the time in in Colorado, I have to squint when I'm outside. Yeah, I, I can't handle regular days, but when it's overcast, my I can relax finally. So I'm from, I think my people are from overcast places. <laughs> Well, uh, what what did you want to talk to, about today? So I've been thinking a lot about this whole deconstruction thing in general, and I uh, first I want to ask you a question. All right. <clears throat> um, have you ever noticed that when you learn a new word or 
suddenly you like you suddenly start hearing that word everywhere uh i have this happens to me with cars uh that, that was my second question <laughs> yeah so when i am what happens to me is when i'm looking for a vehicle to purchase i'll be doing my research and i'll find out about something like oh this exact model of car fits my needs and then suddenly I see that car everywhere. Everywhere. Yeah. They like they didn't exist and then suddenly everyone is driving a Honda Civic Wago van, which was a <laughs> car that I did a lot of research about because it's my dream car. Yeah, I think the first time I realized that was this concept was with the car. Uh, I think I was I was 15 and a half, had my driver's permit. And for some reason, I mean, it's just probably because I was a super cool kid back in the 90s. I really wanted to get a Honda Accord. <laughs> nice. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, of all the cars out there, right? And I'm like, and I remember on this trip we took with my family, I it's like every single car was a Honda Accord. Every one of them. And it still happens. You know, I was like, we were looking for a, Subaru cross truck we bought recently and every single car was a super cross truck and then we're like I'm going to get the orange one because nobody has the orange one so we got the orange <laughs> one and that's like every Everyone intersection is, yeah. <laughs> every intersection there's at least two Subaru orange ones orange cross trucks yeah anyway the, I recently uh, Heather uh, her car is about to fall apart and I've been con- and it's it's a dangerous contraption right now that you can't see out of it's just a horrible, horrible thing. And uh, I've been trying to convince her that she needs another vehicle. And so we're thinking about what she needs. And yeah. um, there's this little Suzuki off-road vehicle something. I don't I don't know what it is, but it had a snorkel on it. And I was like, oh, it's got a snorkel. <laughs> she was like, what is, what's a snorkel? And so that was about two weeks ago. And so now I point out every time there's a snorkel. It's kind of like playing the VW Punch bug game yeah um and uh snorkels are everywhere steve yeah that makes me think i took a business trip to australia a few years ago and this is a case where like you see one white toyota hilux truck oh hilux and yeah you like every single car you see is a white toyota hilux truck and it's like oh wait that's because they are like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we went to some like small little towns in in the outback uh, on the eastern side of uh, Australia, and literally every single car was a white Hilux truck with a snorkel, because the like the the rainy season comes and they gotta go across rivers and stuff, and it, it was it was insane. They're, they're yeah, cool that's, trucks though. That's not because you're noticing it. That's survival of the fittest. Right. And whatever the other trucks that were being driven are are buried or rusted or something and the Hiluxes made it through. That's Yeah, and they said that the re- one of the reasons that everybody drives them is that like that's the only parts that the the, the stores carry. So right. if you, you want to fix your car ever, <laughs> you buy a Hilux. Wow, that's funny. But anyway, the term for this is the 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 Bader Meinhof phenomenon. What? And or, or uh, sometimes if you want to be less nerdy, you call it the frequency illusion. Okay. It it's one of these uh, you know, cognitive biases that people have. And it's just this phenomenon that when you, when something is top of mind, you'd notice it more. And sure. it's not like we, like we were saying, it's not actually, unless it's a Hilux in Australia, it's not actually there more. 
It's just that you see it more because you're thinking about it. And <clears throat> I don't know if that's what's going on with me and the faith deconstruction stuff or not. Um, or maybe it's the availability heuristic. Uh, okay, which, now I don't know that one either, so you gotta explain that so one. That's that. It's kind of it's kind of similar. It's like the tendency to use in or think that information that comes to mind quickly is the correct thing because it's more available to you. That information is more available. Okay. So a heuristic is just like a shortcut to something. Um, so I'm not sure if it's that or the confirmation bias, which is which is sort of similar again. That's like the tendency to focus on or give greater weight to things that fit with our existing beliefs. That seems like it's the same thing as the frequency. Kind of is. It's it's like my idea of what truth is now includes Honda Civics. <laughs> uh, or my idea of what truth is, is these ideas I already have. So then it it's all the brain trying really, really wanting the world to be understandable and fit a pattern. That's a good way to put it because we want things to fit patterns so badly and our brains will go out of their way to make things fit for us, whether they fit or not. Right, yeah. And the confirmation bias is honestly something that, like, side note, that we that is what screws us up so much in life because... We want to, it's comforting to hear that what you believe is the right thing. And so if I believe that the earth is flat and I'm only listening to, it's easier for me to only listen to people who agree with that. And so then I go walk away thinking everybody in the world thinks the earth is flat, but that's only because that's the only people you're hearing because you're confirming your bias. Right. I do that with coffee because there are about, a hundred coffee studies every year. And, and I just wait until it says coffee is good for you. <laughs> like something, something, right. whatever, whatever. Drinking coffee is good for you. Excellent. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Just what I, just what I wanted to hear. And it, it reminds me of this thing that Jesus said all the time, which was whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Mm-hmm. And I, th- I think that a lot of these things tend to get in our way of having ears to hear because what we want to do is just like we have ears to filter and it's very yeah. hard to be open to uh, having ears to, I know that, that that's a, we're now fully in a tangent, but it's no, difficult. hundred percent. Yeah. It's difficult to be in that position where you're, where your own mind isn't playing a trick on you, getting you ready to interpret something in the, in the way you want. But, yeah, and I even catch myself doing that sometimes. Like I will, if I'm not careful, I'll catch myself actively avoiding hearing something that's going to disagree with what I already believe. Mm-hmm. Like some a news story will come on about how somebody that I think is horrible has done something good. And I'm like, I change the channel real quick. Yeah, <laughs> who needs that? <laughs> I don't want to think about that person being a good person. It's easier if I just think about them being a horrible person because then I don't have to change my mind. Yeah. So, and actually that, that I didn't even think about that, but that fits into a lot of this deconstruction stuff very, very nicely. But back to the frequency illusion thingy. Um, I don't know if it, 
what's going on with my if if it's actually that there are more people who are seem to be going through this struggle lately or not um i i and it's it's one of those it's impossible to completely disentangle yourself from all your preconceived notions but at least maybe it's just people in the churches of christ but once again that's the people i that's interact the, with a yeah. lot so but i don't think so i mean we just uh like the or the following the fire twitter account you just posted something about the, that article from beth moore right and which was fantastic by the way but she she recently left the southern baptist convention uh for reasons and and so there seems to be a lot of people in in the christian sphere anyway who are doing a lot of this rethinking and this deconstruction stuff. Do, do, do you, does it seem to be more lately for you or just me? Definitely. Yes. Um, but again, it's, it's so hard for me to know, um, if it's me yeah, or if it's the world. So I, I've had this problem where it feels different. The world feels different. So am I different or is the world different or, uh, did I change and the world changed also? Right. Um, and I think, I don't know the answer, but I, I do think that if we were talking about where, where is something going on in, people rethinking their Christianity or rethinking their relationship to other Christians or to their home congregations. I, I think that there's got to be something going on in the U S in America. Yeah. And then if we ask it's happening in America and who is it happening to, I, I do think it's a minority of people. I don't think um, there's a, a wave of something in the, in the oxygen that has caused people to re-examine their faith. But I do think that there's a small population that is all going through something at the same time. Yeah. I, I think that, I mean, it's something that has always been happening on some level to people all the time because people are always coming up against new information or situations or whatever that makes them kind of rethink their faith or their, what they thought before. But so what, what I want to do is to uh, kind of talk through kind of what deconstruction is and myths around it and what it's not. And then maybe what's going on. Yeah. Why people go through this and maybe what's, what's going on right now. So if, if you just Google for deconstruction, other than like videos and images of like people tearing down houses, you're going to come across this guy named Jacques Derrida. Uh, I think I pronounced that right. I know it's French. You, you tell me. <laughs> I don't even know what you were going for, but you got the Jacques part right. Anyway, Jacques Derrida, Derrida, whatever. So he's a philosopher and... His philosophy of deconstruction is actually refers to an approach 
to understanding relationship between text and meaning and decon pulling those things apart, which is yeah, not what okay. we're talking about. Yeah, that's like English major deep, deep, deep stuff. Yeah. And, All right. And it, it's it's not what we're talking about. It, it's something, something, philosophy, meaning of life, whatever. Um, but that's not what this faith deconstruction stuff is about. At, at a high level, the term deconstruction and deconstructing faith has been used over the past several years, decade or so, to refer to, so at a high level, it, it refers to people just kind of, maybe you would say questioning their faith, but uh, it's just, well, it's what we've been talking about this entire podcast is about rethinking things that you thought you knew, uh, that, thought you, thought that you thought you were sure about right? for whatever reason, uh, whether you grew up that way or you just never really thought it through before or whatever. Um, and when it, I came across this website, the the deconstructionnetwork.com, and the guy on there, he's a I think he's a researcher. His name is Phil Drysdale, and he's got a lot of really good info on deconstruction um, from the Christian perspective. And he he talked about uh, there are three markers of what he considers someone who is deconstructing. So the first one is that someone questions their faith tradition and finds it unable to answer the questions they're asking. Um, and it's usually questioning some seriously core things about that faith tradition, whatever it happens to be. And he, the way, I like the way he put it. He said, questions that if you ask them to your minister or pastor or elder, they would be concerned. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Uh, the kinds of questions that you're you you have a feeling that you probably shouldn't ask at church. Right. Like threatening questions. Like I came up with this question, but I'm not sure it's okay that I even have the question. Right. <laughs> yeah. And like the question, like if I went up to the elders and at, at church and said, I'm not sure that Jesus is the son of God. Right. They're like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> Back up, back up. What are you doing teaching classes, right? Right. Uh, things like that. Um, so it, it usually starts with somebody who has, for a variety of reasons, which we'll get to later, has starts questioning faith, and the answers that they're getting back aren't aligning with what they've learned in the past, or they just, they're not satisfactory. They don't actually answer the question. They don't actually answer the question. Yeah, exactly. sometimes there, there are some hard questions. In Christianity, there are some hard questions that if you went into the hallmark section of Christianity, the answer that you would get is just not, just like, yeah, th thank you for trying, but that's that did, did not did not answer the question. I love that, the hallmark section of Christianity. Yeah, yeah, I mean, the <laughs> like, you know, just be happier. Like the easy answer? Just trust God. Yeah. Or have more faith. Have, have more or, faith. Right, right. yeah. So that's the first thing. Yeah. The second thing is that because of them asking and getting unsatisfactory answers, they now feel the need to change some of their core beliefs because the, the core beliefs that they are questioning aren't holding up under scrutiny for whatever reason. This is where in, uh, in the Disney Pixar movie, one of your marble core memories has to change. Have you ever seen that movie? Oh, it changes color? It changes color, yeah. Oh, 
I mean, it's first it's a little bit sad, and then you have you get rid of a, a little core part of you, and you have to fill it with something else. So that reaction to that core belief could be as drastic as going full atheist. Like like we talked about it a couple episodes ago with the talking about the scripture stuff. And you, you made the really good point that if you have not thought through some of this stuff before and you bring up some hard questions, it might be just enough of a pin to pop your balloon of, of faith. Sure. Yeah. And 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 that that can that could happen. I mean, if if you are questioning some hard things and you can't get an answer, that may in an extreme case it's gonna lead someone to possibly just leave God altogether. But it, it maybe it's not that drastic. Maybe it's just like the the random example I said before, the someone maybe believing that Jesus was not also God, but um, everything else is kind of the same. Or, or maybe it's just something as innocuous as different concepts of the Holy Spirit indwelling or different like theories of atonement or, or whatever. So it doesn't have to be a massive, massive change. Yeah, that change has to happen, but it may either feel like a complete away with everything because I just can't even, it's not tenable at all, or it could be shifting, just feel as small as shifting around a little bit. Yep. And, you know, continuing. And, and, some, and it's not a completely linear thing either. Some people who go through this rethinking of stuff, toss it all out and start from scratch and like build it up from nothing. And some people kind of pick one thing at a time and, and they go back and forth, right. you know, that kind of thing. Uh, part of that also is that this, these subsequent new beliefs are ten, are in opposition to their past involvement in that particular faith group. That's the one. I, I was wondering if there's going to be one that had to do with your relationships or your community. Yeah. And and feeling now that I've got now that I have adjusted and changed my marble, it's hard for me to stay in the same relationships or in the same community. Yeah, because now you're the only blue marble in, in a sea of green ones or whatever. Yeah. And it just doesn't fit. And so it, lead, it leads people to go elsewhere sometimes. Not always. And the third uh, marker of people going through deconstruction is that once they have these questions unanswered and then they change their mind about core beliefs then they typically from then on have a reduced certainty about their beliefs in general. And when you, a lot of people, when they hear that first, it sounds like a bad thing because I, I mean, who wants to be uncertain about stuff? I mean, we, and especially growing up in a church like we did, you know, you, you standing on the rock, right? And I'm not, I will not be shaken. Like the the parable of the man building a house on a rock versus building a house on sand. Right. And so this is not saying that your house is now built on sand. Because I think it's a good thing to be to be a little uncertain. You've lost the illusion of certainty. Right. That's a really good way to put it. You've you've lost the because cert, you know certainty. First of all, I want to say I am a hypochondriac, so so I can go on WebMD and and look at symptoms. Uh, but I want to say I've you just described three things, and I think I have that. 
<laughs> I think I have what you're describing. So, yeah. Um, so I'm, but I think moving from absolute certainty to the next thing, it would actually, it's actually a problem when you move from certainty, then change all of your beliefs and then you're equally as certain of your new beliefs. Yep. Uh, because you have learned nothing. And I, I've, I was thinking about this. Uh, I actually tend to be, I, I would prefer to be certain. And the amount of time that your brain wants to think that it's wrong is very short. So I'll be, I'll have a belief or a stance for five years and then I'll have something that happens and, and I change the belief. And so now I have the new belief. And in my mind, the amount of time that I was wrong was zero. Right. <laughs> Does that make sense? Like I was yeah. correct. I was correct. I was correct. I got some information and realized I should change. And now I'm still correct. Right. Um, but it's hard for me. But what should happen is when I look back on last year, Nathan, and 10 years ago, Nathan, usually, no, not usually, always, I'm always embarrassed about what I believed or did or thought or said. And but, but at I, the time you were right. But at the time I, I was embarrassed about the last year, but <laughs> very confident about how I was doing at that moment. And what I, so I, I go from like, I'm right 99% of the time. Then 1% of the time I get that information where I realize that, oops, I was wrong and I change and now I continue in my rightness. But it's a healthy reaction, I think, to realize, oh, I I have been wrong enough that now in in these things that I believe, maybe I should maybe I should consider the possibility that next year I'm gonna realize I was wrong. And yeah. and so and so I I turned down the volume a little bit on how how hard am I gonna cling to that? And then I I put my radar up a little bit to listen to new information because now I realize I, th I think I'm, you know, I think I'm right, but maybe, maybe there's going to be new information because that's happened to me before. Yeah. And I, I think you're dead on as far as the danger of being certain. I mean, it's cut, like I said, it's comfortable. It's nice. It's where we want to go. But when we're certain where we then lock ourselves in, and you're not open to new things or understanding things differently or, or anything like that. It, it's also a problem because churches tend to be, any church really, tend to be the type of group and type of uh, environment in which dissent and questioning is really discouraged because it's a threat to the stability of the community. And that goes for, I mean, political parties or some companies or clubs. or I mean, it's not just a church thing. It's kind of a human thing that mm -hmm. once we have a, an agreed set of beliefs, anybody who says something different, that's a danger, and we want to push that down. I think there are communities that are have more... Um, what's, what's the word for... Uh, more uncertainty tolerance though. So mm, yeah, uh, I have found in my, I, I have 
just to go through these, I've have had questions that have not been answered to my satisfaction in my faith. Yeah. And so that causes this turmoil inside. It causes me to uh, question my the groups around me, but also my my pillars, my core beliefs. Um, I have changed those beliefs. I've changed the questions. Um, I have definitely felt that distance in community. And one of the things I think I have felt the strongest as time has progressed is I have wanted to distance myself from groups who are adamant that they are certain and correct all the time. Yeah. And that happens. So that's happened to me politically that I, I feel like there's a lot of room for nuance or talks across the aisle or maybe not everything's black and white. And so the, but I started life as someone who did not allow for nuance, did not, and saw the world as completely black and white. And as I have added grays, I have been, you know, the, the churches I'm looking for or the Christians that I have found communion with or people I agree with politically, they don't tend to be the ones who agree with me necessarily. They tend to be the ones who are okay with admitting that they don't have all the answers or they they have a more casual style or they, it's not black and white. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, totally. And another aspect of that is that we, you know, I've always been taught that there is, there is truth. And I totally believe that truth with a capital T is, is out there and it's, it's, it's findable as we've talked about many times, but if you say it that way, then some t- people uh, infer that therefore there's only one way to do everything. And that if you question the way things are done, then you're henceforth going off the reservation and you are in, in danger of the fires of hell to, yeah. <laughs> to, get, ex- to get to the extreme. Yeah, I, I wonder if the... The community problem, which is people who are struggling with these questions in a community that's not answering them, or people who are have now experienced the nuance of life or the gray parts of life and are in a community that is black and white, um, I think that it it ha- you're a closeted, nuanced thinker now. Yeah. And so you you start to experience the disconnects between what you believe and what your community believes. And, and so as a, what happens when you're in the closet is nobody knows that the thing that they just said is, is confirming what you thought about that group or is, is adding to the divide. Yeah. And, and so the, you're sitting with, um, with those feelings, but I, I wonder it's kind of both sides though. Like the, the side that is the group can exist if, if there's too much of the questioning happening. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's going to, it's going to drive those people out, but also just have an environment that's maybe a little bit hostile to that kind of question. But the individual is also picking up on things that are happening and, and selecting out of stepping back and, and, maybe skipping over the questions that they know are going to get them in trouble with the group. 
Yeah, yeah. It, 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 that's hard because, I mean, I, I've been, for years, I've been the one of the, the closeted questioners, I guess, <laughs> to use your, turn, your analogy, of the, a lot of the questions that I've had or still have are questions that, like, would concern the elders, you know, would concern my family. <laughs> right. And so I, I, I really identify with these three uh, markers of a deconstructing person because uh, I've, I've questioned some, I've, I've had some questions and, and I, I can't, can't be answered and I'm changing some of my beliefs. And in a lot of ways, the church that I grew up in is not clicking with that anymore. So now I gotta now I gotta figure out what do I do about that. was thinking about this uh, because of the Bible episode uh, because you what you mentioned was you ran across this 10 years ago and and so it's not even that the question can't be answered it was that the question shouldn't be asked and you knew that and so you you um, you kind of dealt with it on your own yeah Instead of instead of this faith community being a place where you dive in with that kind of thing, um, and I think that the reason that you didn't bring that up is the same reason why at the family reunion you don't ask what happened to Uncle Steve, uh, you know, with his wife or something. Yeah. There, there are these topics that you know. Somehow we've all picked up on the fact that you don't talk about them. Right. And so then when another thing happens to, you know, cousin Jeff, you, I accidentally used names of people that I know, but I didn't, I didn't mean to. <laughs> no offense. I'm, I'm not, I'm not implying anything to a Steve or a Jeff. Uh, all, uh, what do they say in books? All resemblance to characters. Purely coincidental. <laughs> yeah. Purely coincidental. Uh, anyways, w- when it happens to the next person, you you don't even have to ask. You just know you don't talk about it anymore. Yeah. And new Christians get into trouble because they walk into a congregation and they don't know all the rules for what you're allowed to yeah. say or not say or wear or not wear or talk about or not talk about. But then they learn it very quickly because we, as social animals that we are, we are very good at picking up on the invisible rules of a culture of a group and they're strong. They're, they're extremely strong. I have lots of stories about this because I tend to be a, a fish going upstream or a black sheep type of person who tries to push a little bit against those things. And even as someone who is naturally inclined to, when I'm in a community and everyone's pointing the same direction, I just want to go the other direction just inherently Just, just because. Yeah. Um, so it's, uh, it can be a good thing, but it, it's not inher- It's not all all a good thing. But even in that, there are limits, and I've I've been reduced to tears because of 
unspoken societal pressure things that have happened to me. Like, uh, I, I remember once I was in chapel in college, in college, which is kind of like being in church and you stand up and sit down and there's songs and, and there are things that you do or don't do. And everyone was standing and then somebody forgot to say, everybody be seated. And so the a group of 2,000 people were standing up um, <laughs> for a song. And then a yeah. speaker came, which is clearly the time when you sit down. So a, a trickle of people started to sit down, but they had not been asked to sit down. And then a few more people sat down. And then a few more people sat down and I was noticing this because I like to study how people work. Yeah. And I was just kind of interested in, you know, interesting. We didn't get the command to sit down. So, so what's happening now are, are people are, are sitting down uh, faster and faster because suddenly the, the majority has, has taken over. And so I just kind of wanted to see what would happen. And so then there were maybe 20 people standing out of 2,000. And then there were maybe 10 and then five <laughs> and then uh, one. And it was me. <laughs> of course it was. Be- because uh, I was like, uh, nobody told excuse me, to me but nobody has told us to sit down. We have we have been instructed to stand. But uh, so that so that's when so I, I started tearing up because of how really? strong the the even as a what i am is called disagreeable that's the that's the name for for that <laughs> the, the character trait which is that you either you're agreeable which means that you you really want people to you want to fit in and you want people mm-hmm. to like you or you're disagreeable and you do things like well i'm going to stand anyways i don't care what anyone thinks they didn't tell us to sit down um so even as the the most disagreeable person out of two thousand people. I was sweating. I was bright red. I'm bright red now because of sunburn, but I was bright red then <laughs> because of social pressure. Um, and then I sat down because I felt I felt like a jerk because now uh, there was somebody trying to speak, and I was causing a distraction. So, um, anyways, that that's a story about how when I learned how strong so social unspoken pressure can be. Yeah. Um and and when you add things onto that like uh multi-generational family bonds and it's religious you mm-hmm. you have just turned up the pressure so much. Um, so much. Yeah. Yeah, that makes me think of a story um shortly after college I was uh, a youth minister in Nakoma Park, Oklahoma, which is I didn't a know that. tiny little like blip of a town east of Oklahoma City. Okay. And uh it was a small church, maybe 150 people. Maybe maybe that's maybe that's too big. Anyway, small church. And they it's one of these churches that it they've had the same order of worship for the past 50 years. And you put it on the get the cardboard numbers and you put the the song numbers up on the wall. Yeah, before church. Yeah. And I led singing there quite often, and uh, I remember one time <laughs> that it was like after the, like two songs, and everybody then everybody stood up to for the prayer before the lesson or something. I forget exactly when it was, 
but I, I decided not to have anybody, everybody signed up quite yet. And this one old dude, everybody called him Brother Spicer. <laughs> this, I mean, I didn't say stand up, but Brother Spicer stood up and he looked around. Everybody, and he's like, motioned his hands up in the air. He's like, come on, come on. Everybody's like, okay. And I'm like, I guess we're standing up. <laughs> That's <laughs> It was hilarious. He's like, that. this shall not pass you know the, the we are standing up because that's what we've set up for 50 years at this time during the worship time, worship service right and he and he knew the pattern so it it's in his cells now it's not even it's not a, a conscious thought it's yeah it's it, he muscle may have, memory right he may have just stood up accidentally and then realized right. he was the only one standing up yeah i i've because i've I've done things where I was helping out with a small Oklahoma church, not meaning to pick on Oklahoma. I would, we would just start both experience. Happen, yeah. Yeah. We just both happened to be in Oklahoma, but, um, I was at, uh, Wilshire. Okay. And I think that I was leading a song and I, I realized, so my tempo of the song was not the tempo they were used to singing the song. <laughs> And so it was just an experience of, you know, I, I think what I did was like, I sung the fast version of the song and the congregation was like, no, brother Nathan, (laughs) (laughs) we're going to, we're going to drag you back down to where it's supposed to be. And it, you know, it got to the natural, um, funeral, funeral march. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, That that they wanted to, to sing it at. And that's like the, it's almost like a pile of ants. Like the uh, so ants and bees fascinate me, and they 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 have a mind that is outside of each yeah hive individual mind. thing hive mind, and people are like that, especially close knit groups like that, and so it it can't even be like nobody's meaning to do anything. We're just all used to this, you know, this pattern. It's a very interesting phenomenon. Yeah. So all that to say. Deconstructing is not an easy thing to start doing, uh, which kind of leads me into partly what it's not. Uh, and these, uh, I stole these again from Phil Drysdale. Uh, he he had a video talking about ten myths of what of deconstruction, and I'm not going to go all over all of them because um, a lot of them are kind of re- repetitious. But I thought that was kind of a good way to talk about what it's not. So the one of the myths is that people don't. The reason people go through this deconstruction process is they just don't want to go to church anymore. <laughs> and he's like, if people just didn't want to go to church, they just wouldn't go to church. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they don't, I mean, why would you, why would you go through this pain and this struggle and this distancing from family and, and friends just because you don't feel like going to church anymore? And and he's like, statistically, <laughs> the facts are that many people still go through the, to church through it all. And actually, people who go through deconstructing, like like I feel like I am, and like you are too, I guess, in some ways, um, they tend to go to church more than other members of the church. And most people who go through this are still very, very in love with the church and the community and God. And it's not that they want to get away from it. And it's kind of the, and then the next myth is that they were never really involved in the church to begin with. So like were, Steve, 
Yeah, right. <laughs> like they were going to fall away anyhow, right? <laughs> and once again, like there have been studies in, on this and studies are all showing that deconstructors are more likely to be those who are heavily involved, uh, people who are in leadership, oftentimes even high up in the leadership of churches. And they're, they're in general, some of the most dedicated members that there are. And there's a, so, and it's not that, it's not about better or worse. So I, I think some of these are trying to say, when you're in a community and you see someone doing this, these are stereotypes you're going to think about them. Right. But I, but I do think there are some reasons for why would um, people like that also be the ones who actually are more involved? It's it's not because they're they were better. It's because it was a more central part of their identity. Right. So it, it's easier to if if your faith is not a central part of your identity, it's actually easy to keep going through the motions. Because that that doesn't uh, cause you any pain. So yeah. maybe the stereotype of the, uh, you know, uh, the Easter Christmas Christian or, or or someone who gets dragged along by their spouse or something, that's, it's fine. They're, they'll show up. They could go every Sunday or they could go once a year. It's fine. They're not feeling any internal dissonance from that. Right. It's... It's so that's why specifically for someone to go through this pain, it's because it's a core, core part of who they are. And so that that's why you might find more people who are actually very highly involved or go more. It's, It's not about that those people are better people or anything. It's if you if you question something that's not central to you, you don't have to go through a process. But if you if you are if there's something central to your identity, then it's it's already in the important part of your life, and so you have to deal with it. Right. You can't just you can't either just keep going and ignore problems, or you can't just easily just quit. No, exactly. Yeah. Uh, you have to go through this pain, and, and that I mean, what you said perfectly sums up like most of his his myths. <laughs> I mean, um, the the myth of, like oh people people who do this deconstruction thing. They just did, they don't know enough about the Bible, you know. They need it explained to them better. It's like, well, no, they probably know more than people who don't do this. Um, once again, it's not a better or worse thing. It's just a difference. People say that well, their faith was never real. Well, it's so real that they have to, like you said, they have to address it. Um, one thing, one myth is that they're just leaving because they were hurt by the church. And while being hurt by the church is maybe sometimes maybe that's a good reason to leave. <laughs> um, just like in an abusive uh, relationship at home. Right. That's maybe a good reason to get out of there. But, um, but that's not the reason people tend to start going through this process. Usually they said, actually people stay an average of seven years after they start realizing that they maybe should not not be there anymore, whether it's from them being, whether it's abuse or trauma or starting to just starting to go through this process in general. Like you mentioned 10 years ago, I noticed this, I started noticing some issues with the scripture and, right. um, you know, 
So it's been 10 years and here I am still. And, you know, one of the myths is like, well, they're just liberal. They just want to go to a, a liberal church. <laughs> they're just making <laughs> up reasons, you know. And I, I could see where that comes from because often the things that are deconstructed are like these layers of tradition and these fences we put around things. And so when those are removed, people who honor those traditions as holy, you know, straight from God, are going to perceive you as a liberal or whatever. Um, so, I mean, those are just some of the myths. But what it's not is it's not an excuse is what it kind of comes down to. It's not an excuse to just get out of there or to believe what you want to believe without feeling bad about it. It's people who tend to be very, very dedicated, very uh, involved, that this is a very important thing to, in their lives, like you said, their identity. And in some ways, they've been so close to it and so involved, and they've studied so much about it, that they're starting to see the chinks in the armor, and they're trying to figure out why. Because it's so important, they're like pushing and pushing and pushing for the why. Yeah. Which leads them to look in different areas, look in different directions, and different faith traditions, or whatever, whatever you want to call it. In general, I think that deconstruction is a super healthy thing. Um, I'm sure that a lot of people who are think it's scary and dangerous. Um, but I mean, in general, I think that rethinking stuff in general is a good idea. Not just with faith issues, but in the in all of your life, really. And it, I think it's a it's a natural part of growing up. Not not just faith deconstruction, but I think that we we think it's normal for children who are now transitioning to adults to go through a process like this. Yeah. Where they are, and we use terms like, when it comes to faith, we'll say making it your own faith. Yep. Um, instead of your, your parents' faith, now you're making it your own. But that process is this. It is an examining and... And you're either building from scratch or replacing the the pillar that you were borrowing for from your parents, yeah, uh, with the same thing or with a slightly different thing, or a completely different thing altogether. And so, this probably happens in lots of different ways throughout life, but we associate it most with twenty year olds or so. Mm-hmm. That's when just it's natural for you to do this for everything, right. It's it's common when kids go to college, for example. Yeah, and it partially maybe because of distance. There's distance there physically, so your your community maybe may or may not be as strongly influencing your your formation for a while. But you're also encountering those questions. I think the biggest thing is twenty year olds now are encountering the big questions that are big questions for a reason, which is that they are difficult to answer yeah. or maybe they don't have a clear answer or they don't have a good answer or no answer. And so 20 year olds do this and we, we call it ma- maturity and um, growth and growth. And, it, but it's also, uh, that's when people are going to either, that's when people are converted or when they leave or lose their faith too. 
Yeah. You're, I mean, you're right. There, there, there are some, anytime you start rethinking things or looking in a different place, there's the danger of that person going that other direction or leaving, leaving entirely. But there's also not doing it. There's a danger in my, in my opinion, an equal, equal danger of atrophy and just doing something that's mean, it becomes meaningless because it's never become part of your heart. There's an excellent podcast episode by Brene Brown. It's her, her uh, podcast, um, Daring to Lead. I think it's only on Spotify. I'll put a link in the show notes for it. But she interviewed this guy named Adam Grant, and he is a um, like an organiza- organizational psychologist. And if you listen to the episode, it's right at the 45-minute mark. I think he starts talking about um, how rethinking he, – I think he's he – he wrote this book. It's called – I got it here. I haven't read it yet. It's called Think Again, The Power of Knowing What You Don't Know. And and he says that rethinking is a component of courage. Those are interesting phrase. Interesting. And how it can lead to heartbreak, uh, needing to make amends, admitting you might have been wrong all along, and may require a lot of hard work, and it's not for the faint of heart. And they weren't talking, they were talking about like organizational like work psychology stuff. I'm like, but man, that is a hundred percent. Yeah. The, the, that hits the, the Megan Jody thing with me where I was, I was certain in my certitude. I was a hundred percent certain of my beliefs, beliefs as a eight year old. So much so that I was willing to persecute the other eight year olds on my block. Yeah. And in the rethinking, I felt the, sh- the shame and guilt and, uh, and realized in that case, you know, what have I done? Which is a very Paul yeah. uh, like thing to, you know, he, Paul was certain in his beliefs and then yeah. kind of went to being certain in his beliefs again. You know, I don't know yeah. how uncertain Paul was, but it's, I think the Dane, I'm hearing someone say, if there's, if there's even a little risk that, that someone would be led astray that someone would be lost, then is it, is it worth diving into? And my answer is if, if that was, if that was the, the, the whole world, then maybe not it, if we could just, but the real danger is the next generation or the, the people next to you, because what, what causes it's, um, What's the the jolt is proportional to how far how certain you are. So, Hmm. if you have, uh, and there are horror movies about this, about societies that try to construct some way of doing things, and and they close out the outside of the world, and they they remake um, all of truth, and there is security in that. But then when somebody wanders outside and meets the outside world, that is a a traumatic experience for them. So that, so the danger in not questioning is in yourself. You're not going to ever apologize or admit that you're wrong or, or change and, and be corrected, but you're also making it harder for the next people and the other people in your group. Um, because you are, um, yeah, you're, you're making it harder for the, for the people in your group. And there, there's a, I think there's fear associated with that. So I, I think definitely w- when my son, 
my son who's six right now, as he gets closer and closer to leaving and approaching what happens in the 20s, I could be fearful of that and, and want to protect him from that. Yeah. And that is natural. I think that makes sense. Or I could introduce him to that in proportion, slowly, and uh, and show him that and show him the things that I'm working through or that I'm not certain about. Yeah. Um, and uh, I I've I've wished that this happened at work, and I wish it happened in churches too. When someone makes a claim, I wish that we had to say how certain we are of that claim. Mm. And if people asked me that, it would be very helpful because I will speak up in a meeting at work or I will say something at church. And if someone said, what's your certainty? I'd be like, maybe 23%. <laughs> oh, because you sounded like you were 100% sure. But it, my certainty is actually like, ah, no, I'm in the low 30s, maybe. That happens to um, me all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and it, and I, I actually ask at work, I'll ask. People will give me an answer, and I'll I'll say, "What? What's your certainty on that?" And they'll be like, "Ah!" And then I know, okay, good. Now I know that you are not sure about that answer you just gave me. And it, I think that's a healthy thing in a church to yeah to introduce a little bit of we don't have all the answers, or people don't know, so we're not going to come down one way or another because it's because this is one of those very uncertain things. Yeah, and it's, I think it's important to be honest that we don't know some things. And I, I've actually heard from a couple people about this podcast that one of the things that they appreciate most is the fact that we often say that we don't know. <laughs> and the fact that that is, it seems to be an uncommon thing is concerning to me. Um, and was, you know, I was thinking about when you talk about your your son. I mean, we're, my daughter is 18. She's like, she'll be, she'll be tw- 19 in like a month. Wow. Yeah. And which just still blows my mind. And so throughout her life, we've been trying to very be very careful and purposeful about exposing her to things that she'll see in, in the real world. And and to help her to understand what that what those things are going to be like. Um, and it's it's hard. It's hard to know when to let things go and and let her figure stuff out on her own and when not to. But if she doesn't figure that stuff out on her own, she's going to be in a bubble. Like, like there are some people who are like super keep your kid in a bubble. People, <laughs> like yeah. don't don't expose them to anything at all. And then I'm f- concerned about those kids because they're going to get out into the real world, and then like everything is going to hit them at once, and and I'm not sure what's going to happen. It also made me think of my grandpa, whom I've mentioned before. Um, he forever did not believe that dinosaurs existed because they're not in the Bible. And uh, my mom told me, I, my, I think I was there, but I was too young to remember. They, they took a trip out to Dinosaur National Monument in Colorado, in Western Colorado. Yeah. And they have that at the visitor center. They've got that huge. Have you been there? No, but I, there's a huge wall. Yeah. It's this huge wall. It's like hundreds of feet long. It's like about a hundred feet high. Just, Thousands and thousands of dino, like dinosaur bones just still in the in the rock that they're slowly excavating. Yeah. And my mom said that he just walked around like with his mouth just wide open, like what? Because really, here's like solid proof 
that dinosaurs existed. And it's it's like it's like he almost hear the gears grinding in his head. Like this doesn't make any sense. This doesn't yeah. this doesn't go with what I've always believed. So it can it can be hard, um, but uh, and one of the things that this guy Adam Grant said in the podcast is people prefer the comfort of conviction over the discomfort of doubt. Ah, oh, I love that. Uh, I love that because the opposite of doubt is not strength. Right. The opposite of doubt it maybe is comfort. Yeah. Well, I mean it's certainty. I know what the opposite of doubt is, but right. an opposite of doubt Con- conviction and doubt. Yeah. Yeah. Because I do think there's in Christianity there can be or in Christian communities, um, I think there needs to be a healthy amount of doubt. But when there's not, doubt can be seen as weakness, and certainty can be seen as strength. Right. Uh huh. Hundred percent. Um, but doubt is not the same as weakness, and certainty is not the same as strength. They they just are not. They are not uh, correlated at all. So yep. you could, you could, I suppose, someone who has weak faith could be full of doubt. But I, I think that uh, that there is a lot of room for doubters in in the Jesus movement. Absolutely, and I think that's super important. I, I recently, uh, you may you may have sent me this article. I don't remember who sent this to me. Um, it was talking about how the future church in, in the age of the nuns, like N O N E S people who don't associate with any specific church. Okay. Um, in the age of the nuns, the doubting church may be the, the last hope that we have or something like that. Uh, the church that welcomes doubt is, is so important because by the way, the world has not protected itself. The world is not in a bubble. The questions are out there and the problems are out there. Mm-hmm. And so you, I, I feel like um, doubt minimizing only works if you want Christianity to spread biologically. Oh, that's, that's good. Yeah. You, if you want your kids who were, you're a Christian and your kids were born into your family and you want them to be Christian, you could try to just, uh, you could homeschool them. And you can uh, make sure that they don't interact with movies or shows or friends or places so that they can go through life with, with as little doubt as possible. And it will preserve uh, it, their faith, maybe. But yeah. you can't convert somebody from, uh, you know, uh, an agnostic or an atheist or a nun by removing their doubts because they're there. It's too late. Yeah. The doubts I, are there. I call that evangelization by procreation. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's really common to be honest. And it, it should be, if, if we had listened to Paul, which I'm glad we didn't, there would be no procreation. <laughs> right. And it would all be, um, it would all be seeking the people who aren't, who aren't, uh, who have the doubts. Right. Right. Um, but the more, this reminds me of, um, for some reason I thought of, I think I want to say it's, um, there's an economist, a French, it's like Picardy. I'm, I'm looking it up. 
Pickety, Thomas Pickety, talked about lots of ideas, uh, but one idea was about when uh, people who have money and people who are renters basically are out of proportion, mm-hmm. your society is going to start to go upside down. So mm. when everybody is renting from a small percentage of, of landowners who have all the capital, you are creating a a uh, situation where there's going to be a lot of civil strife because eventually that it's so out of balance that the renters just have to keep renting indefinitely. They can't afford to save up and there's never going to be a healthy proportion of people who just can live on their own and don't have to give their money to the rich people already. Mm. Anyways, when all the Christians in your church were born into a church, Mm -hmm. and there are very few people who converted, you are on the path in a couple of generations from turning something that was a a faith of a, a religion following Christ mm-hmm. into a culture and a society. Mm, yeah. And and eventually and it do- doesn't take very long your culture is going to be the the main point not Jesus. Yeah. And so it's you have to watch yourself because you're eventually not only are you uh, trying to remove doubt to keep your culture going, but sometimes you accidentally remove Jesus or you some parts of your culture that just happen to be there because you're all French or you're all American Southerners. Well, an extreme example of that would be like Amish. Yeah, right. I mean, and they, I know that I know that Amish people, I met quite a few when I was uh, doing a youth ministry internship in Indiana I mean, Amish people are very, very religious, God-loving, Christ-following people. So they would not say that it's not about Jesus, but to at least at least to the outside world, it seems so much more about the culture than about Christ. And you don't convert to to uh, to that kind of a life. And you so, and I would say the Amish, they have to work really hard if Christ is going to stay at the center of it. Yeah. Because there's enough that's going to keep that going. So I, I would say, I feel like that my limited experience that there are Amish communities that have done a pretty good job of keeping a Christ-like uh, attitude. But if I was Amish, I would not have that. It would be all about how am I different from society and why is that important to me and what are these core beliefs that I have that are outside of that, you know? Yep. Um, so it, it just, so, so the danger though is you, you got ra- rid of doubt, but your culture gets mixed up with your Christianity and in the next generation doesn't know that they can't tell the difference between right. your culture and your Christianity. And then when the culture doesn't work anymore for whatever reason, then faith is gone. Because right. it's based on, based on traditions or culture or what you wear, what you don't wear, or what you kind of music you listen to or you don't listen to, and it's not based on Christ, and that that's that's a, a scary place to be.
So I want to talk about why, why, why people go through deconstruction and why there seem to be so many right now. The reasons why, there are millions of reasons why people go through this. Uh, generally, from what I've been able to find, it, it kind of breaks it down into theological questions. Um, maybe they people come to the point where they think that hell seems inconsistent with God's uh, God's character, or they see too much of the problem of pain and doesn't they don't understand how like the question you know you hear all the time how could a good God let bad things happen to people things like that. Um, and, you know, like we said, often the kind of the questions that are not welcomed in churches sometimes. Um, and, some, and so theological questions and sometimes life happens. And the experience that you have in life is different than what you were told was true. Uh, like, I'm a super fundamentalist guy. Suddenly my child comes out to me as gay. Right. <laughs> That's going to make you rethink your beliefs pretty darn quick. Right. Well, or or ruin a relationship. Or yeah, <laughs> exactly. The, this, the those are the the two options you have. Yeah, and I f- I feel like that's such a good analogy because I think the the current moment has more to do with community and relationship than any of the individual issues. You know. Yeah, maybe your life is hit by pain and suffering, and in such a way that it's like it's not fair, and you get mad at God. And makes you start rethinking some things, which is right. uh, a, an entire episode that we're going to do later. Because <laughs> I have <laughs> been there, <laughs> uh, still there, you know, in some ways. Um, yeah. So that's, I mean, those are general reasons why. But um, what's hit me the past few years, what I've seen is that there's, it seems to have turned up a few notches. And whereas people have always gone through this on some level, it seems to be happening more. And so some some of the things I've I've seen, I know that, I know that like recently just this week there's all these articles that came out about how church Gallup polls show that church membership has fallen below fifty percent in America for the first time ever. I and saw that. Yeah. This article that I read said, uh, but it's not that people are leaving God. They're leaving church. And it's so spirituality is still high. And it says, for one thing, studies don't actually show a significant decline in spirituality among Americans. People who study American religion talk a lot about the rise of the nuns. This rapidly rising American demographic, 21% as of the most recent poll, say they don't label their spiritual beliefs, but that's not the same as them not having spiritual beliefs. Most of them do. They just don't necessarily trust historical institutions like church to guide them through their spiritual journeys. So just because they're not church members doesn't mean they consider themselves secular atheists or agnostic. Right. So part of it is people are kind of pulling back from church, which kind of makes me wonder, why are people leaving church? Oh. Every every time you say the rise of the nuns, I picture uh, like a zombie movie <laughs> with... Uh, Sisters of the Cloth. So it it's happened a couple of times in this episode, and I can't stop or, my mind. Or for our older uh, listeners, peop- like the Flying Nun TV show. <laughs> right? Yeah. I don't know if you ever saw that. Attack of the Nuns. Right. Um, the Year of the Nuns. All you know, it's like Planet of the Apes is is basically what I'm picturing okay. only with nuns. Um, 
I think the I I wrote down three things that happened to me that also happened to every other American. <laughs> so okay. One, I don't even want to say it uh because we don't have to anymore. It's which uh to reveal my personal positions uh I'm very happy about that is Trump. Yeah. Trump is a force that happened or maybe a symptom of something in this country that impacted us all um in in quite a few ways and uh oh yeah. Maybe I'll just the main one being some the they call it like the temperature of the discourse, the 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 tone mm-hmm. or the the heat of civil discourse, um, maybe moving from the Lincoln Douglas debates to some future point from civil to less civil. <laughs> what it is now. What it what it is now. And, you know, I, I don't know if Trump is to blame for that or if we are to blame for Trump, right? So, right. I, and I don't, um, but that happened to all of us as Americans. And unfortunately, um, for Christians or non-Christians, Trump uh, wrapped himself up in a, in a, in an American flag and in a. Holding a Bible. And holding a Bible <laughs> and yeah. tied himself to that movement and the movement um, did not reject that. Embraced it. And embraced that. So that is a thing that Christians and non-Christians all witness at the same time and has been formative to us. What what non-Christians think about who is Jesus, but also what Christians are thinking about other Christians and our communities. Who who are we? What are we for? Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, when, uh, when 80% of evangelicals vote for Trump twice in a row, and yeah, I that I mean <laughs> that made me <laughs> that that hurt. It's it's hard because my um I have learned we we just addressed this. I have learned that I am not right all the time and that, and so as I've gotten older, I have tried to hold my beliefs as less certain. Mm-hmm. And then when I encounter somebody who sees the same event and and sees it completely different. My natural reaction to that is now that I, I want to understand it and I, I can almost always learn from it and then see that person's perspective. And I just, uh, this, so Trump has been a phenomenon that where I have, I have been unable to do that. Yeah. I, I'm with you. And it, it's, I can't even picture, I am somebody who I was on the debate team, um, which is where, you are good at arguing both sides of a issue. You you don't get to pick what right. side you're on mm-hmm. in debate. You just prepare for both. There's the topic and you prepare for both and you're, you're good at both. And so you have to be able to see the, the logic or the reasons for both sides. And that's something I have, I think about myself that I can do. Mm-hmm. Even things that I feel strongly about, I can see why I, why someone would think the the opposite, but there's, but the one uh, I guess it's not one thing, but but Trump has been this thing that I just I want so badly to to understand 
in a in a way that is a reasonable explanation. Why did eighty percent of of the people who are sitting in a pew next to me, listening to the Sermon on the Mount, why did they not see these events and react the same as me? And I, I, I can't tell if this is one of those times when I just am, am blind and I'm having trouble empathizing or I'm just correct. And it just turns out sometimes things are right and wrong, you know? Um, I'm going to go with your but correct. It's, <laughs> yeah, I think I, well, I, <laughs> um, but the, here's the, here's that to go back to our questioning faiths and changing core beliefs. What I would like to do in any, any times there's an issue that I'm right on. And then there's another, uh, stance mm-hmm. of people who are wrong about it. I, I want to dismiss them as either, um, unintelligent or immoral. So either the, in the, you know, the IQ quadrant or in the decency quadrant, if someone disagrees with me, I want to say, well, they must either be stupid or, uh, evil. They must be (laughs) evil. Thank you. Stupid or evil. But I, am confronted by these pesky intelligent and moral people who went through the same 2016 through 2020 that I did and who I know are intelligent because I work with them or because I know who they are and I know that they're moral and they they have seen the events differently and I just my my brain doesn't know what to do with that. I am 100% with you on that. I mean, we we could So, yeah, go on, the, go on about that. This isn't the Trump this isn't the Trump uh episode. No, but so I, maybe that's, I, I he's that's one of the things I had down as far as why this seems to be happening so much lately. And I I do think that um Trump has been a a catalyst for uh, Trump and the things he brought with him. Uh that he popularized, like you said symptom or not when he when he took charge he made lots of things okay he made white supremacy sure. okay he made sexism okay uh all, all, lots of stuff and um and you know in in some ways maybe just said the thing we were all thinking the thing that we would wink you know so right. so in, in in that instance it for me it's not uh, white supremacy or, or whatever, but it's, um, it's explicitly stating that we are having a culture war. It's the Christians versus the communists mm. and we're going to, we're going to beat them or us versus, or, them. um, it, it, there are things that you would hear, you know, that we're, the country's going to hell in a handbasket. Yeah. Um, we, I don't know, we're letting these people in the military or, or the, the decline of the family and things that are being whispered in pews by a small portion of people that it was brought to the center. And then it was, it was, you used to have to come up with a different reason for a policy that played better on TV. You know, that was more political. Mm -hmm. Isn't it funny that 
we have an adjective that is political, which means that you you make it decent for for people, <laughs> yeah. right? Being being political is that you politically correct. Try to <laughs> politically correct is actually otherwise known as being nice. <laughs> yeah, it's being nice, and it's it's. Uh, I'm trying to be political, which means I consider everyone in the room and make sure that I'm not going to offend someone. Right. Um, we need a you know that's a word that means something else now, and not that's that's not a Trump phenomenon. That's that's uh, not new. Well, the issue is the issue with Trump is that not that he existed, but that, or that he tied himself to Christianity, but it's that Christianity grabbed onto that and held on tight. So people who in in Christianity, and I'm not talking about outsiders because we're talking about deconstruction here. People within the, the Christian sphere saw that and saw the dissonance and the, the, the cognitive dissonance there, there and saw the people around them, like you said, the pews next to them supporting this, this kind of behavior. They're like, hold on. If, if this church is wholesale, apparently accepting this guy and what he stands for, which is clearly wrong, what else is wrong? So it's kind of a trigger. Like, now I'm going to start paying a little more attention. So it's kind of the, the, the dedication thing. And so these people who are super dedicated on average, not everybody, obviously, super dedicated and involved, saw this dissonance and started like questioning everything else around them. There's a pretty sizable population in America of people who, they're not Jesus Christians anymore, but they are culture America Christians, but they stopped going to church and they haven't gone to church for 20 years. Yeah. They'll check the box if that's question asked. Yeah. If someone says, are survey. you a Christian? They'll say, dang, darn tootin' and everyone else should be too. And it was founded on Christianity. Right. So right, right. it's, yeah. So that portion of the, of the cultural, they were biological Christians three generations ago. And then they, they confused their culture and their Christianity and it just became their identity. Um, fused with some America stuff. Yeah. Those people went for Trump in droves. But then yeah. when you when you go to a congregation and the people who are there, what happened was dedicated Christians on both sides of the pew witnessed all these things together and it was a catalyst to start looking at each other and at least for for me it it was a uh, Man, I'm seeing this play out, and it and it's clear to me. I, I I don't care too much about who people support politically. Yeah, but I do I do care a lot about what what is what is Jesus and what is following Jesus and and the cultural Christians who didn't have very much Jesus. It feels like, man, I'm I'm try, I'm I'm nervous here because I'm uh I, I'm trying not to paint with too brought a brush because I honestly don't understand the the devout Christians who really are trying and really want to be followers and also they don't even see not only do they not see what what I'm talking about when I when I say Trump yeah but they they can't they they're screaming at the monitor because they can't they don't understand how I could see Trump as 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 evil right, right. or Trumpism I don't even care about Trump um but but 
for me, what, what that represented was Christianity, uh, culturally, cultural Christianity in America, getting our relationship with power wrong, yep. getting our relationship with truth wrong, and getting our relationship with outsiders wrong. Those are, those are some so big I, things to get wrong. <laughs> they're, but they're they're the same things that the disciples got wrong. Yeah. They wanted Jesus to take over Rome. Yeah, they they all got the power thing wrong. Oh yeah, and they didn't get it. They didn't get it uh, even until after the resurrection. They were like, we the res the insurrection failed, um, <laughs> and and now we're sitting in this room just waiting to be arrested. Yeah, right. They they got it wrong too, and but Jesus was reminding them, no, my my kingdom doesn't work that way, and my power is is when you give up power and when you serve people and you elevate people up, and so when I look at the the first century Christians, or not the, even the first century, the first decade Christians, it makes sense to me that they got it wrong, but then they wrote it all down for us, and then we we get to look at that. And, and so it's just hard for me to miss. We have now the benefit of the, of the story. Yeah, we, we know we know that they were wrong when they said that, but we want it so bad. We want, and I'm saying we, meaning American Christians, American evangelical Christians, we want to be back in that seat of power. In schools, we want them to teach or not teach what we say. Right. In in what's happening in the culture around us, we. Maybe we're on top at some point, or we imagine that we were, and we we want to get back in the power part of it. Yeah. So it's a, again that it's I guess it's two thousand years old the the problem, and and truth. You said earlier, truth with a capital T exists and is discoverable, and I think uh, one thing that was solid in my life especially in my political life was that um, as a conservative, as a conservative Republican uh, in the, with my catalyst, my introduction into politics was the Bill Clinton impeachment trial. Mm-hmm. What was a clear thing to me was that the moral characteristics of leaders mattered, whether it was your coach in little league or the president of the United States. Yep. And I kept on believing that, and and my tribe stopped believing that <laughs> in slowly. But but then looking at the polling, my tribe uh, made a one eighty in two thousand and sixteen. Yeah, and that's I think the the pain point is that everything was going one direction. I was I have the exact same path as you, basically, as far as being. Like I was super Republican, super conservative, you know, all on the, it's kind of like, I feel like Paul talking about how he was like the Pharisee of Pharisees, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, that was me, but I didn't, (laughs) but I didn't feel, but it was also not what it is now. That's so I've, I started conservative and now I don't even have a name for what I am because they took the name for what I am. Yeah. I'm a conservative evangelical right but now that but if you say that that has totally different connotations but the 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 buffalo guy maybe is too and so i need they they took the name and i just i honestly don't know what 
to call myself now because I don't I feel like I stayed being conservative and I feel like I stayed being evangelical, but the definition changed. Right. And when that definition changed that I think that for a lot of all of all throughout Trump's presidency, I felt really I was very concerned and disheartened by my fellow Christians support of him. Not just because like for their own hearts and how sad that was to me, but what it said to non-Christians about the church. And I focused on that a lot as far as like how, how and I said this over and over, how Trump is giving Christ a black eye. And that really weighed on me. But it wasn't until recently when I started kind of looking into some of this, how much of a black eye Trump was giving Christianity to Christians as well. stuff aside what happened to me was that my big faith questions and my core beliefs changed when I was 20 Mm. and then maybe again when I was 30 with with pain or trauma or just with being out on my own yeah and what happened in 2020 to me wasn't that those questions were either all there or I, I didn't get any new questions, but I had been aware that I was sitting next to people in pews that maybe wouldn't have appreciated where I came on those things, but I had decided them 10 years ago and I'm, I'm confident enough that I don't really care that much that the people next to me in a church don't, don't believe that mm-hmm. or believe something different. That That's going to happen in a church yeah. and it yeah. should happen in a, in a church. I think what happened in America in 2020 is a lot of people who were sitting in pews and they were okay with the discomfort of, well, you know, I, I believe this about the inerrancy of the Bible, or I believe this about homosexuality, or I believe this about, um, illegal immigration yeah, or whatever it is. They, they were fine with it. And then there was a catalyst in 2020, which compelled people uh, to feel like they needed to publicly say, "I'm I'm sorry, I'm not, I'm not, that's not Jesus." Yeah, and that's not who I'm a part of. Right, and so if if there hadn't so this so there was Trump, then there was Black Lives Matter. Yep, and then there was COVID, and I yes, and I, it could have maybe been one any one of them. But Trump itself was not enough for me, by the way. I would have kept on. I was disappointed. I'm extremely politically engaged. Um, and in 2016, I was disappointed in uh, evangelicals. But yep. I kept going and sitting next to pews with them because that that's okay. You know, there. I yeah. Um, we can have a dis- difference of opinion. Yeah, even if even if I think it's wrongheaded, because I I'm sure I have that stuff too, um, and. And also, politics is important to me, but it's to most Americans. It's 
it's football is more important than politics to most Americans. Right. And politics is more important than football to me. And it's okay. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but black lives matter. I, I am ashamed. And this is an, a, a confession. I have witnessed race riots on the news my whole life. And I have not cared. Yeah. I, I have maybe had a stance on the issue. I've been, uh, proud enough to come up with a stance. Ah, they shouldn't do this because of this or whatever. But it wasn't until 2020 that I finally had compassion. And the confession is, it felt like I saw this problem for the first time that's been in front of me for my whole life. I felt very similar with that because like my wife grew up in a uh, part of Oklahoma City that in Dell City, which is much higher percentage uh, black, and um, so she, she, just by nature where she grew up, she knew a lot more black people. I mean, I grew up in like the whitest town in America, right? You know, Fort Collins, Colorado. Right. There's like one black kid in my high school of a thousand people. Um, so, like even on like the the things that her friends shared on Facebook for the past ten years, where there are lots of videos of police brutality. And all kinds of other things that she would show. She'd be like, look at, can you believe that this is happening? And I would like, I can't hear it. That's too depressing. I don't want to hear it. And I, I, I feel bad. I, I shut it out and I tried to ignore it because it wasn't bothering me. There's something about this compounding of, and the multiplication of factors with, with, with the pandemic where it's like, we all had no choice but to sit at home and watch this stuff. Yeah. I, I'm curious why. I do not know why I was receptive this time. Is it because that's the only thing I can think? It, it was because it was, it was in this. It was trauma on trauma. Yeah, we're all watching the news to see what the COVID numbers are and see what all, what else stupid Trump said, and and this comes up too. It was also much a lot larger scale than it has been in the past recent years as well. And yeah, I'm just curious that because I did not feel like I. I don't know why I was open to it now, but I, I do have a feeling that just like that there was, again, a large portion of white Christianity mm-hmm. that somehow also woke up to that at the same time as I did. Yeah. It's, it's just interesting to me. that So I believe that it's, it's COVID, but um, I... Uh, that again was a so my eyes were opened to to my brother to my neighbor yeah um in a way that I couldn't I, I couldn't put the scales back on even though I, you know it's now it's I'm living with an, this uncomfortable thing it's like you've been the levite walking by for years yeah and i would not have even, preferred not even seeing the guy <laughs> in the in the ditch and i would have preferred to continue cuz now i have to do something or i yeah. But again, that that was a thing where my community in the pews reacted. And by the way, the way that I have reacted a hundred percent of the time before that. Yeah. But suddenly, I felt the wedge. I felt the distance in my community, um, and I also felt the need to speak up on behalf of my community. And and so I and I did, and I, I started looking at my role, my church's role in the, in the history of this 
if it was just Trump, I I would have been fine to continue. Yeah. But the the Black Lives Matter movement suddenly gave me this reason to to do something and not just and a um yeah man I'm for me to follow on what you're just saying I I probably would have been fine too if it was just the, the issues with Trump but when the Black Lives Matter movement stuff came along and I saw my church local and nationally do practically nothing um that hurt and i i'm like this something's not right what's going on here and for for me the the guilt that i live with is that it would not have hurt before uh that, that's what i mean so the uh, um something happened and suddenly i i was woke is the term yeah but the the person next to me that is my brother and is in the pew next to me did not go through that same thing wasn't didn't see trump the same way didn't see the racial reconciliation moment in the same way and so there that there was this distance that was growing but i was starting to see active hurt from christian culture and that i remember i remember praying for this Early in 2020. Really? So in publicly, I mean, at the church that we attend, something was happening. I want to say it was, let's say February 2020. Okay. I I could be wrong and it's probably recorded somewhere. So I I don't know. But there was turmoil happening. I I think it was from COVID-19, the the rumors of it. And I got up in, in front of the church and I asked for more. So I, I, I said something like, God, be with us through this moment. Um, we are filled with sorrow for what's happening. But if what it takes for us to wake up to who you are and who we need to be is that we need more of this, then pour it on. And if if what we need is is not for the political discourse to be turned down, but for it to get worse so that we can finally wake up and, and see who we're supposed to be. Then I ask that you bring that and that you don't stop until the church uh, is glorifying you, you know? So that was, thanks a lot, Nathan. Yeah. So (laughs) then we got 2020 (laughs) and now we know whose fault it is, right? But the, so I, I kind of think, and there's a lot of hubris here, but I think the church had a moment and it, and we did need this. We needed yeah the coronavirus pandemic. Pandemic means it was everywhere. Right. And uh, the Americans that are the, they never go to church, but they're still consider them Christians have a hard time picturing that there's an anywhere else mm-hmm. other, other than America. But this trauma happened to the whole planet. And and so we got to see, those of us who have friends who live abroad, we got to see what happens when the relationship between cultural Christianity and power and truth and the outsider is corrupted. Yeah. And so f- f- 
for a small, sadly for a small percentage, it was a waking up moment. It was the trauma that we needed to, to repent and to, and to ask and, and to confess and to ask for forgiveness and to rethink how, what should we be doing with power and like elections or, or, or whatever our powers that we hold or, or, you know, covering up scandals, that's a power issue. What should we do with truth and how should we treat the outsider? And maybe I should be expanding who I think of in the kingdom as not just Americans or not just my tribe. And so we, the pain is that the, those of us who woke up were surrounded by people and it, that disappointed us so much by s- continuing on as if nothing yeah. happened. It, it was such a huge opportunity for the church to be seen as what I think Christ intended it for, for it to be, which was a support for each other, a champion for the oppressed, a group that's going to help the world instead of harm it. I mean, like the, the whole, all the crap about masks and, not believing the coronavirus is real and how central that was in the evangelical world. It also was another catalyst for people wanting to rethink their, their connection to this group called Christians. Right. And it, it's happening. It, it, thanks to I, social distancing, it, it's happening to little groups of people in congregations everywhere, but we've been finding each other. Because some of us are the only one in Tennessee yeah. or, you know, the, the only one in their, in their congregation. And it, it's such a lonely feeling. But a few lucky ones of us found each other so that we could not feel crazy. Yeah. And the social distancing, I think, is an aspect. It's kind of like the last aspect that I had down here as far as the a compounder of the situation. Um, maybe not in a bad way. <laughs> Cause I really think that there's a lot of good things because speaking for myself, I probably would have still kept going along with things. Had I not been forced to distance myself from the situation, from the, the congregation and actually look at things. And when I did, I saw some, some things that concerned me and made me sad and it gave me a chance to look broad, more broadly about what's going on in the rest of the world uh, spiritually. So it, it's, I think that it's been a year of um, forced growth in a lot of ways for people and forced self-reflection that we, especially in our quote-unquote, fast-paced world don't take the time to do very often. And we've just had a situation where, you know, whether or not God brought it on, the church has had the opportunity in many ways to be self-reflective and to look at itself. And I think in a lot of ways, the church has failed. And I think that's one reason so many people in the church are rethinking what what they've always believed. And I mean, where do we go from here? 
I mean, Baden-Weinhoff phenomenon aside, I think that there are a lot of people who, who are going through this. And it's hard. It's not fun. But I feel that that's where we need to be. And I, I, one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this, this to, for this episode was I want people to know that they're not alone. That they're not the only ones in, in Tennessee, like you said. Right. That, that are struggling with this and are trying the, their hardest to follow God through the wilderness. And, you know, maybe sometimes things need deconstructed for a reason. And that reason may be that it's, it's broken or it's, you know, it's like cut the tumor out. <laughs> I, I don't know. Feel free to edit any of this out because I know we could talk about this for hours and hours and hours. But oh, I'll, first thing I'll say, which I think s- speaks to what you said, which is that the most pain for me is thinking about my brother and sister in Christ. That I have gotten to a point of what feels like irreconcilable difference. Yeah. And I have in my in my personal journey, I have always gone towards more and more acceptance of more and more different brothers and sisters. Because I, I want to expand who like who is what is the answer to who is in the kingdom and who who's on my side and who mm-hmm. and and all of those things, um, and so that it's it's such a difficult moment right now for me to figure out what does it look like for me to how should I think about the other side of the divide and how do I love those people and is it redeemable? Yeah, and I don't know the answer, but I. I have hope, but, but maybe it's not, maybe, maybe there's a, a remnant that moves on. There, there was this, uh, prayer that I, I came across in the with God daily devotional. It's an email that Sky Jitani, um, sends out and so I'm giving all the, so it's William Laud, who's from the 1500s prayed this prayer and he said, Most gracious Father, we most humbly beseech you for your holy church. Fill it with all truth, and in all truth with all peace. Where it is corrupt, purge it. Where it is an error, direct it. Where anything is amiss, reform it. Where it is right, strengthen and confirm it. Where it is in need, furnish it. Where it is divided and torn apart, Make up its breaches, O Holy One of Israel. That's good. And it's it it spoke to me be, because of that because of that that moment. And it's I do I, I'm so glad you said I I want people out there to know they're not alone. But sometimes following Jesus is lonely. Yeah. Um, for a while. But the 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 church is out there, the the followers are out there, and the nice thing is you can just look to the left and the right and eventually you'll find someone who's going the same direction as you because you're you're both following the same person. Yeah. And not only are they not alone, but I think that this is a good thing. Uh, yes. I want to emphasize that. Here's another crazy thing I've prayed for before. <laughs> My political beliefs are such that I I like to say that Christianity is a weed. And what I mean is that 
Christianity does best when you're trying to stamp it out. <laughs> when, you, when you're, then it just spreads like crazy. Yeah. But it, it just doesn't do very well when you water it and you put it in a, in the, in a pot and it, it kind of rots a little bit. So, so when, when pe- my political beliefs in the, in the past 10 years, it's, I'm glad nobody ever asked me this at church, but, um, when they would say something like, should we enact this law or prayer in school or whatever? My answer is, I think they should make Christianity illegal. I think the best <laughs> thing for the kingdom would be to outlaw Christianity because Christianity does great. And that, you know, the, the fire is good for Christianity and it's, it holds up so that, you know, again, the, I need a, I need, somebody else needs to take over praying for a while. Cause clearly I need to not, uh, <laughs> I need to not be asking for more 2020, but I just keep doing that because I do think we need a little bit more. Um, but the bringing it back to Israel, this this is not a new problem. Not at all. Israel was selected by God as the chosen people, and they were supposed to bless the rest of the world. Yep. But instead, they thought, they thought that the specialness was about who they were. And so most of Israel focused on their specialness. And they thought it was because of them, not because of God giving them a mission. Mm-hmm. And over and over, little portions, the, the Bible that we have is, is not the document of the majority of God's chosen people from, you know, uh, let's say Abraham to Jesus. It's the document that was put together by the, the outsiders who survived through the majority opinion being completely opposed to what God was trying to do. Mm. It's the, it was the unpopular prophets who, who sometimes had bad news and, and sometimes said, Hey, I don't think we've got it right. Um, and it's most of Israel got it wrong. And such a small percentage of Israel got the priorities correct and realized their chosenness was for them to go bless the world, not for them to win and um, subjugate the world or or be lifted up. It was for them to lift other people up. I, I think we're just reliving that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we probably should wrap this up. I, 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 want, I did want to... I want to share one quote with you before we quit. It's from uh, Sarah Bessie, her book, Out of Sorts, okay. which I recommend. Um, for it, it's, uh, it's all about uh, this process we're talking about. And she said, if our theology doesn't shift or change over our lifetimes, then I have to wonder if we're paying attention. <laughs> so... This whole this whole process, it's not a once in a lifetime thing. It's not like, oh, pandemic, Trump, Black Lives Matter, let's change things and then move on with our lives. I think it's a it's something that we need to be renewing our, our minds day to day and re- renewing our connection to God and constantly trying to ask questions. Because if you stop questioning, you stop learning, and then you stop growing. And we need to be growing toward God all the time. And I think asking questions and hard ones, uncomfortable ones, ones that might get you kicked out of church, at least ask the question. <laughs> you right. know, 
the answer could be who knows what, but at least at least ask the question. I'm I'm thankful that I have people to go through it with. That absolutely. So I'm I'm really grateful for you, Steve, and uh, over the last year, you know, even before we were uh, doing this thing, it's it's just nice to have someone else that so that I don't feel crazy, you know. And, <laughs> I like how you um, said you don't feel crazy. Yeah, no I come on to comment on actual crazy. No, the jury's still out on that, but. <laughs> You get two crazy people together. Here's another. Here's a problem with the internet. You get two crazy people together. They're both gonna think they're sane. So, right? Yeah. And they're both gonna start a podcast. They're good. Yeah. So. Yeah. All right. See you later, man. See ya. But you only wanted love. Hey, thanks for listening to Following the Fire. If you'd like to see show notes for this episode which includes links to everything we mentioned as well as all the scriptures, head on over to followingthefire.com and just click on this episode. There's also contact information on the website. Let us know what you think about the show and if you have any suggestions for future topics. Also, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts if you could. It really helps other folks find the show. And as always, thanks to the fabulous Daniel Wheat for the theme song and the music for the episode. You can find more of his stuff on Apple Music and Spotify. See you later. Heart. Can't compare with what you're worth.